have your Bible this morning, if you want to turn to the book of Genesis, the end of chapter 2, we're going to be in 2 and 3 today. Yeah, if you don't mind helping with that, thanks. Normally I can drag it on the carpet, it's going to get uglier if I drag it on the wheel, right? Please pardon our under-constructionness. Anybody notice anything different? Besides it. I wanted to be closer to you guys. I was just feeling so distant. So we've moved the stage out some, about four feet, and that way we can have some more seats on the sides there. But anyway, welcome, everybody. Glad you made it. Glad you were had enough faith to walk on water and slide your way here. We need to be praying for everyone's safety. If you were with us last week, you saw in Genesis chapter 2 that we were answering the question that David asked in Psalm 8, what is man that thou art mindful of him? We talked about the fact that man is a creature created in the image of God. We suggested that that involved his ability to reflect God's image, his capacity to rule over creation, and then his need for relationships. But we also found that with that capacity, he had a responsibility. Remember in chapter 2, God gave him some very clear instructions. We left off last time in verse 18, and we were talking about the fact that as a creature in the image of God, he had a need for relationship. It is not good for man to be alone. Before we pick that up, though, one of the things that we've been trying to do is spend some time in prayer together. And this morning, I want to direct our attention to a little something a little bit different. I want you to think about, as our church is growing and the Spirit of God is moving in people's lives, it's incredibly important that each person discovers their giftedness and then they begin to do ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, as every member works together, all the joints, it grows together with a growth which is from God. So I want you to consider that this morning God has something for each one of us, every person that's a believer that's part of this body. It doesn't matter how much more we multiply, the more we have to divide into specific units of people who are doing ministry. So one of the things that Paul often prayed, and we don't talk about this as much, is that in order to do ministry, it takes a couple things. Number one, it often starts with a desire. God's Spirit puts within you a desire, a passion, some some place that he wants you to get plugged in to the body of Christ. Now, think outside the box. I'm not saying, okay, well, either be a Sunday school teacher or, you know, help set up chairs. That, that's quite possible. But it's much broader than that. There's a broken world out there that needs the gospel. And they need physical, emotional, spiritual help. So what Paul would often do is he would pray for his converts that the Holy Spirit would work in them. And I want to read two prayers, and this is what we're going to pray today. And the first person you're going to pray for is right here. You're going to pray that for yourself. But then we're going to pray that for one another. The first of those verses is an interesting little prayer in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And you've frequently heard me say this. Learn how to pray from the Bible. Don't just say, Lord, be with me today. Because I think you would probably say, well, I think that's a sin because I already promised I would never leave you nor forsake you. So we're starting to learn how to pray what the Bible teaches, okay? So in 2 Thessalonians 1.11, this is what Paul says. To this end, we pray for you 
that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill. Now think about this. He will fulfill every desire for goodness and every work of faith with power. So the implication is he's assuming that the Holy Spirit is going to give us desires to do good. Okay, Maybe even something as basic as this. I know God wants me to really work on my marriage. Or he wants me to be a better parent. Or he wants me to be a spiritual leader. Or he wants me to start a ministry or go on a missions trip or change careers. So pray that God will both create in you a desire and then that he would fulfill that desire and that work of faith with his power. All right? So if some of you go, man, I don't have any desires to do anything. No, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, if you are a believer, the spirit's at work in you. God works in us to will and work for his good pleasure. But the other verse is at the end of Hebrews 13, and it's very similar. It's in Paul or whoever wrote Hebrews, the benediction, probably not Paul. But this is what he, he pronounced on the church. He said, now may the God of peace equip you. In other words, give you the stuff that you need. Equip you in every good thing to do his will. May he work in you what is pleasing in his sight. So this morning, that's what we're going to pray. Lord, you have things for me to do. You, you have character that you want to develop in me. And you have ministry that you want me to do. Every one of us, no exception. So Lord, work in us. Fulfill those desires. Create those desires. But then as, as I have those desires, equip me. I'm not going to be able to do this. Right? You don't have to have a, a seminary degree. You don't have to... You know, have this tremendous training, just being available because he will give you the, the resources. So equip you in every good thing to do his will. And it's so cool because it's not like he's sitting there going, you better figure out what I want you to do. You better figure it out today. He's already got it figured out. In fact, he says in Ephesians 2, he's got good works prepared beforehand. So it, 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 it's, he's got the agenda. He's got the plan for you. It may be to, to have a small group. It may be to start a ministry or to go in prison ministry. All kinds of things. The Spirit works in many different ways. Paul says there's a variety of gifts and a variety of ministries of the Spirit. But we can be sure of this, that the living Spirit of God is working in the body of Christ to give us desires and then to enable and to equip us and empower us to do His will. And in both passages, he always ends with this. So that... God will get the glory forever. So what we're not interested in is seeing how many heaps we can fill, how many soul scalps we can get, but rather, what does God want to do through this church? So pray for your family. Maybe he has some unique ministry that he wants you to venture into. Pray for our young people. It's not as though, well, when you get older, you can be a big boy or a big girl and serve Jesus. All of us can find things that we're passionate about and get engaged. And that's part of the role of pastors and leaders. It's not us doing ministry. It's helping you discover your ministry gifts and then equipping you for the work of service. So let's take a moment of silent prayer. And you're, you're starting, Lord, and maybe for some of you, you need some repentance just to say, you know what? I haven't even really been thinking about that because I, I've been equipping myself to do my will, you know, to do my thing, as the gangsters call it, right? We need to stop doing our thing and realize 
unsaved to do his thing. And you will find great joy and power and enablement. So if you feel inadequate, here's your prayer. God will equip you to do his will. He will work in you what's pleasing in his sight. We just connect with him through prayer. So let's bow together. Picture yourself like the Apostle Paul saying, Lord, what will you have me to do? And they just say, keep doing what you're doing. just feel weak and tired and you'll burn out. Ask him to revive your heart and reignite within you a passion. If your priorities have really gotten mixed up and keep taking a back seat, repent and surrender back to being used by the Spirit. Father, now as we come corporately as one body with one voice, as brothers and sisters, we realize that we are very, very different and we're in many different places spiritually in our lives. But you said in the word that it's your desire that we come to a unity of the faith, to a unified knowledge of the Son of God, to a maturity. So, Father, I pray that you will continue. We pray that in this church, your spirit would be doing these works of power, miraculously transforming people, awakening within them the the beauties and glories of the gospel. May more and more people be falling in love with Jesus and deeply surrendering. And then, Lord, equip us. We pray for our pastors, our elders, but every single person in this fellowship, our young people, that we will be doing those things that are pleasing to you. Lord, it is amazing to think what you have done here and what's coming as we put you first and as we seek your face and pray for the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, do great things beyond what we can imagine. You told us that it was good that you would go to the Father because you would send the Spirit. And greater works can your church do because you've gone to the Father. So, refresh us, revive us, renew us. Give us vision and passion and perseverance. Some people just need to stay their post and keep working. May we be steadfast and unmovable and abounding in the work of the Lord this morning. Lord, may your word, even as we open it now, edify, convict, comfort, train us, challenge us, and feed us, for we learn that man shall not live by bread alone. May the Holy Spirit speak to me and through me so that we're all bleeding knee at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. So we pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to pick up in chapter 2 of Genesis.
And, oh, good. You, I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is we have a really nice big clock, digital, big bright. I think the letters are blue, not even red, blue letters, like blue letter Bible, right? It's going to be right, th- right there on the back. Bad news is we don't have an outlet yet, so it's coming. <laughs> but plus, wasn't there a song that says, there's really no place to go, let it snow, so we're just going to snuggle in here, you know, hope you, hope you brought a blanket and some cocoa, so, all right. So, let's pick up in chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, I think the intention here was to see the contrast. God saw everything he made. It was very good. But then he says, here's one thing that's not good. Now, God had Adam and Adam had God. So it's like, well, he's not alone. He has God. But what we're finding here is that one of the things that we learn about the image of God is that the image of God includes both the capacity and somehow the necessity of relationship. And so, though this verse is directly related to marriage, I was talking to someone yesterday who's not a believer. And it was, it was a, an intense struggle because this person was struggling with something that made it very difficult for them to be married. And they said, well, what about me then? So am I left to, to just be alone And so I think we all need to recognize that loneliness is painful. But you don't need to be married to find companionship, meaningful companionship. But here we learn that God has given man the desire for companionship. But notice verse 18, I will make him a helper. We talked about this, a helper suitable for him. Now, one of the things I really want you to think about as we talk about marriage here and I want to suggest a book, and this one I'm going to say twice, and I'm even going to say it again. You know my normal rule. I'm going to say it twice after that. I don't say it again because everybody goes, tell me that book again. And I'm like, I said it twice. So this time I'll say it a hundred times. Tim Keller, The Meaning of Marriage. Okay, we'll say it one more time. Tim Keller, The Meaning of Marriage. I don't say this often. Everybody needs to read it. It is Outstanding. If you've ever heard or read any of Tim Keller's books, or his listened to him on his blogs, but his, his series on marriage is the number one most listened to set of messages. Profound. But one of the things he mentions about marriage is that marriage is this friendship companionship. And he makes an interesting statement. He says, friendship revolves around having some sense of a common vision. You have a common passion about something. You know, you can be friends with people who, who like to bird watch. You can be friends with people who like to fish. You can be friends with people who might be interested in something that most people aren't. But you are. There's that connection. So the thing that's ironic is that God, did, when he says he's alone, he doesn't say, so I'm going to make him a friend. He says, I'm going to make him a helper. And so it, it, it reminds us that, When someone comes alongside to help you, it implies you've got something already that you're doing, that you're engaged in, okay? So in marriage, what is it that your partner comes alongside to help you to do? Now, if we were to look at this from a humanistic standpoint, we would say, 
change diapers, pay the bills, wipe snotty noses, go grocery shopping, go to work, once in a while go on vacation, you know, do what you got to do to survive, right? But all of us who are believers realize that our greatest calling and mission is not just to kind of wander through life trying to make ends meet. It's to become like Jesus Christ. God is far more concerned about who we're becoming than what we're doing. Our calling, though, though, though my occupational calling is important to God, it's not as important as my spiritual formation. So what I think God has in mind for us, because we can read from the New Testament back into it, that God's greatest goal is that we are supposed to be helping one another to become more and more like Christ. That's your number one calling. Now, the problem is, we don't understand our role in that. We tend to offer to form a quadrinity where we will be the Holy Spirit's assistant in helping our spouse change. That's not what he has in mind here. But when Paul comes to this whole idea in Ephesians 5, he reminds us that when God, who is the the creator of marriage, ordained marriage, that he saw within this all along that this would be a visual representation of Jesus Christ's representation to his people. So he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak with reference to Christ in the church. So I did a wedding yesterday, and I said, you know, teachers are always called on to use visual aids. So I simply stood beside the couple, and I said, exhibit A. These two are a visual aid of what Christ is doing with you and me. And he has our husband, and we as his bride. What is he doing? He's helping us to become more and more like Christ. He is nurturing us. He is cherishing us. He laid down his life for us. And his goal is that he might present us to himself without spot or wrinkle. So God's design within marriage is that we see our role as a very, very significant part of helping them to become like Christ. Now, the problem is, it's the methodology where it breaks down. Because we're broken people. And so I don't have time to develop that, and that's why I would really want to encourage you to be discussing that, to be reading books. Because for some of you, you've got the right motive, terrible methods. But just think about that. I will make them a helper suitable. Now, at this point in the revelation of God, they didn't understand all of that. But they understood the idea that they both have a common vision. So, verse 19 says, Out of the ground God formed every beast of the field, bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And when you give something a name, you're, you're, you're demonstrating your authority over them. You know, playing basketball, basketball players love to talk trash, right? So we'll say things when we're playing ball like, I'm your daddy, or I own you. Or I learned one last night. I can't wait to use this at the gym. My shot is so sweet, you're going to get a cavity. But, but there is something. When you're telling someone, I own you, I'm your daddy, right? So, so I, I might even try this one. I named you, right? Because in essence, God said in Psalm 8, he put animals under man to rule over them. And so the very essence of naming them emphasizes Adam's position to rule over them. 
But the text says there was not found a helper suitable for him, verse 20. And remember we said that that literally in Hebrew means opposite, in front of him. There was something that he needed that would complete him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and slept, and he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib. Now that's an interesting word, fashion, because the normal meaning of this Hebrew word is to build. It's used of building the tabernacle. So God built a woman. He constructed her. He designed her. Now, we're going to learn from the New Testament that, that there are differences. She's a weaker vessel, not in her character, but in her construction. He fashioned a rib, which he had taken, and the man now said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, there's a couple interesting word plays in this chapter. God says to Adam, your name is Adam, which, which the Hebrew word Adam means dirt. Or some, some uh, Hebrew scholars think it means red dirt, like clay, like the word Edom. But he says, your name is Adam because you were taken out of the Adamah. Your name's brown because you were taken out of the ground. But now he says to Eve, your name is Isha because you were taken out of Ish. So there's this sense that the scripture says, man was created first, and he was formed out of the dust of the ground, and then Eve was taken out of him, and now she's beside him. And one, one fellow suggested that he almost said something like this when he saw her. This is what I've been missing. You're what I've been missing. You remember back when you first were dating and you felt that way? Sometimes that kind of wanes a little bit, but there was a time when you felt that way, right? You're what I'm missing, right? In fact, I heard a preacher one time say, this is the worst advice I ever heard. I wanted to just go up and shake him. He said to, the audience, to, to these young people, how do you find your wife? And, and the, he said this at Cairns, said to a group of young people. He said, when I saw my wife, I just knew she was my missing rib. I just knew it. Now, I, I wanted to just go up there and say, that is the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. It is. You don't even know she's a believer, Right? For two weeks, I, I saw boys walking around like this, like, oh, stop it. That's terrible advice, okay? For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, remember that this is the verse that Jesus used to speak of the permanency of marriage. When they asked Jesus, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? He said, that's not how God designed it from the beginning. But then Jesus added something to this verse. He says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And so there's a permanency that's God's design. Now, this isn't to say that he hasn't permitted divorce under certain circumstances, but it certainly isn't his desire or design. Verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And I think there's something deeper here than simply they had no clothes on. They, there was an innocence about them. They, they, they didn't know how to even think in the category of evil. But now we're introduced to this very familiar passage, and so I want to move through it quickly because I want to get to the consequences. But the next seven verses will be about the temptation. So we'll start in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field. Which, by the way, this word crafty is not a bad word. It's a word that's used in Proverbs of prudence and wisdom. So 
person can be wise and can use it for good, or they could use it for evil. So we often see that with our kids. We're like, man, that kid has great potential. I just hope he uses it for the Lord. Amen? Some of you going, yeah. So my, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. Now, the, the, the problem is, if you're reading for this first time, you're going, uh, excuse me, snakes don't talk. Right? Like, I got a problem here. Like, I heard a story once where these, these, um, these two dogs were standing there, and this horse walked up and said, um, hey, do you guys know what time it is? The two dogs looked at each other and goes, check that out, a talking horse. So it's, animals don't talk here. So there's a mystery behind this, okay? And there have been theologians who have said, this is just a myth. It can't be true because animals don't talk. Secondly, there are people who say, this isn't the devil because it doesn't say anything about the devil here. However, I want to remind you in Revelation chapter 12, Satan is described as the great serpent of old, the devil. So I think it would be very safe to say that somehow Satan was able to empower and embody this snake. There's still mystery to it, but that, that's where the snake got the capacity to speak. And one of the things we learn about temptation is temptation always begins in the mind, okay? It, it, in fact, I would suggest that all sin begins in the mind. I've never been able to think of any sin, any violation of, of the, the moral will of God that doesn't begin in the mind. You're like, what about an outburst of anger? Well, it might have been a split second, but it still started in the mind. So Satan's chief goal in temptation is to undermine your confidence in the word of God and particularly to undermine your conviction that it's a good thing to submit to God. He will do anything he can to just get some wiggle room to say, hey, if I can undermine their confidence in the word of God and their conviction that it's always right to, to obey God, the game's over. So he doesn't walk up and say, hey, why don't you just disobey God? He cleverly begins to erode that. So he starts with a statement. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any of the tree of the garden. Now notice how, this shows you how clever he is. Because he knows what God said. God said, you can eat from all of the trees. So instead of simply saying here, hey, I wonder why God won't let you eat that tree. He says, has God said you can't eat from any trees? See, and this is one of the natures of temptation. We have a lot harder struggle with temptation because we now have inherited corruption. But think about what Satan's doing. He's getting us to focus on what we can't have. Okay? And the Bible calls that coveting. When I want what I can't have, when I'm not content with what I do have, then Satan is inciting within me the temptation to covet and to fulfill myself outside the revealed will of God. This is why one of God's Ten Commandments is, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Because we can be going along fine in life, very happy with what we have. But what Satan wants you to do is to take note of what you can't have. Has God said you can't have sex till you're married? Well, what's he trying to do? He's trying to cast doubt on God's goodness. If God was good, why would he be encouraging you to not do something? In fact, I think he's holding back on you. Now, remember, when Christ refers to Satan, he says the devil is a liar from the beginning. So we're going to see, man, this guy is clever, but he's a liar. And we need to realize that he's doing the same thing with us. Now, he's not going to walk up to you in the form of a talking deer and go, 
hey, why don't you have an affair, right? But he still has the ability to put thoughts in our minds, okay? Don't discount that, that Satan has the ability to suggest thoughts in your mind. He doesn't send you a text ahead of time and go, you've got mail. And you go, oh, I wonder what the devil wants. We know this from scripture. When, when Peter attempted to prevent Christ from going to the cross, Jesus handed him a ward. He goes, you got the Satan's helper award today. And Peter's like, what are you talking about? He says, get behind me, Satan. So the scripture says, Satan put it in the heart of Judas to betray him. I don't think Judas went, hey, thanks, Satan. That's a great idea. He had no idea. But even Ananias and Sapphira. Remember when Ananias and Sapphira got this diabolical idea in Acts chapter 5 that they would look like good Christians without sacrificing? Hey, let's sell this, but keep back part of the land. Peter says to them, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So as Christians, from time to time, we need to simply step back and be reminded that this is how Satan is at work in your life. He will put things into your mind. You won't know they came from him. And you will begin to have thoughts that are eroding your confidence in God's word and your willingness to submit to it. And often it will involve focusing on something that God has said, you can't have that. The Bible calls these things the lust of our flesh, these desires of our heart. Now, let's not give Satan too much credit. James chapter 1 says each one of us is drawn away by our own lust. Well, what do I do about that? Well, what do I do when, when, when I have these thoughts that, that I want to do or say or do or do something that's outside the will of God? Well, the first thing we learn in Ephesians chapter 6 is that we need to take the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We need to know what Scripture says about these things. And then secondly, it says we need to resist Satan with the shield of faith. In other words, we need to begin to extinguish those lies. So, so what Satan, Paul says in Ephesians 6, is his flaming missiles. These are these fearful thoughts. These are these thoughts that produce anxiety. These are those, not all anxiety, but, but thoughts that get you worried. Thoughts that get you discontent. Thoughts that get you mad at God. Thoughts that that frustrate you. He's putting these thoughts in our mind and we have to monitor our thoughts and we have to, like Eve didn't do, we have to be clear on what does scripture say about this? See, obviously Eve was not clear in her mind. She had a vagary in her heart that led to a great disastrous mistake. So oftentimes the battle is not won in the moment of temptation. The battle needs to be won ahead of time as we're studying the scriptures. And we're ingesting them into our lives and we're going, thy word have I hid in my heart so that I might not sin against thee. Daniel becomes an example of this. In Daniel 1.8, see, Daniel figures, you know what? I'm probably going to be faced with a, a, a temptation to compromise. They're going to offer me food that, that I can't eat. So Daniel 1.8 says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. And so there's all kinds of material written, Adam wasn't a good spiritual leader, he didn't train Eve well, Eve wasn't paying attention when Adam was teaching her. Lots of speculation, but the point is, he raises questions about the will of God. So the woman says to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Now right away we go, hmm, there's a flaw. We don't remember God ever saying, you can't touch it. And it is interesting because Satan, Satan 
doesn't mind going on either side of the Word of God. The Bible says you shall not add to or take away from the Word of God. And one of the things that Satan's content to do is he loves to add to the Word of God. He loves to get Christians to believe that God is tightening up things in such a way that you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't have that. You can't have that. I call that legalism. It's when we add to the word of God. The Pharisees were masters of that. You know, the Bible said you weren't to plow on the Sabbath. They said you can't drag a chair across the floor. You weren't to carry a burden on the Sabbath. So they wouldn't let people. They had false teeth back then, wouldn't they? You couldn't wear your false teeth. Just these ridiculous things. And so today we'll have people say, you can't go to the movies. You can't play cards. You can't wear this. You can't do that. You can't listen to this. You can't read that. And you're like, wait a minute, where is that written in the scriptures? Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 4. He said, I don't want you to exceed what is written. So one of the things that appeals to Christians about legalism is they like to not have to think and just have someone tell them what to do. Here's your list. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's not the mark of maturity. A maturing Christian, Hebrews 5 says, through practice in the word of God, they're learning to discern good and evil. And so one of the marks of Christian maturity is as I'm spending time in scripture, I don't need a list of things. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. I'm learning to walk in the spirit and I'm learning to filter things through scripture. So Satan adds to the word of God. And then he gives her a bold-faced lie. You shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. Does that sound familiar? If ever there was a person that was both qualified and disqualified from that phrase, hey, you will be like God. That was Satan. It's exactly what he did. In fact, the two, two chapters that I want to refer you to here, we don't have time, but Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. They both describe an earthly king that God is pronouncing judgment on, the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre. But as you read the description in those two chapters, God begins to say things about those kings that you're going, boy, it seems like he's speaking of somebody more than a human king. For example, in Ezekiel 28, he says to the king of Tyre, you were perfect in all your ways from the day that I created you. You're going, really? God would say that to a human who's fallen, who's broken? He says, you walked in the midst of the garden of God and every precious stone was your covering. You were the anointed cherub who covers. And so many theologians, including let's just say many Christians believe that these two passages are passages that are telling us about the fall of Satan because it says you were perfect in all your ways until iniquity was found in you. But in Isaiah chapter 14, there's five times in that passage that this king says, I will. He says, I will ascend. I will sit in the throne. I will be like the most high. And so, apparently, this is the essence of sin. It's, it's a desire to usurp our own authority. It's to become our own little gods. I think this is kind of silly, but there is some truth to it. Did you ever notice that the middle letter of sin is I? And I'm going, yeah, that's probably why God says the word sin. Because 
you know, kind of like you remember the guy on your team, hey, why don't you pass me the ball? There's no I in team. And he goes, yeah, but there's me in team, right? So people always find a loophole. But the point is, much of sin does involve an independence, a desire to usurp our autonomy apart from God. I want to Burger King it my way. And now that we've inherited Adam's corruption, we have autonomy desires on steroids. And so each day as Christians, even having been regenerated, we're still taught by the Lord to pray, Father, thy will be done. Because my flesh always says, and my natural default, and I don't want to get an amen from my wife here, is my will be done. Tammy's developed a few hymns like that. To Tom be the glory, great thing. <laughs> all pastor's wives do that. We men other pastor's wives to go, it's all, remember that song, it's all about you, Jesus. Tammy and her friend were coming up with hymns, it's all about you, this guy, Al, all about you, Al. You know, I'm like, come on, give us a break here, all right? We know we're depraved. All right, so, apparently she was very close to the tree. Now, that in itself, one commentator pointed out, was probably not a good idea, okay? The scriptures portray for us that things that will weaken us or things that we are not supposed to participate in, stay away from them. Flee from youthful lusts, right? So the fact that she's close to the tree, close enough to see it, right, doesn't mean she's doing anything wrong. She's just taking a gamble here. So the idea is not to see how close we can get to the edge of God's commandment without crossing it. But rather, we need to be cautious. In fact, Romans chapter 13, verse 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then don't make any provisions for the lust of the flesh. So one might ask, what's she doing so close to the tree? Hard to say. But verse 6 says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and that it was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, I want to make a note that we learned from the New Testament here. Though both of them severely disobeyed God, Adam's sin was worse. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says that when Eve ate, she was deceived. But Paul actually says in 1 Timothy 2, but Adam was not deceived, and he fell into transgression. And as a result of that, the Bible doesn't say through one woman sin came into the world. It's through one man sin entered into the world. Now again, let, let's, let's go back there and watch what happens. Put yourself in Adam's shoes. You watch your wife eat, right? Now some people say, oh, you know, she went and found him somewhere and said, hey, you want to taste a really good? No, the text says she gave it to her husband with her. So, so you know, we could recreate that. No, Adam, grab her hand, right? Or, or once she did it, Eve, you should have never done that, you know? It's easy for us to be Monday morning quarterbacks and say, she sh he should have gotten divorced, you know, and he's probably thinking, well, you know, I don't want to be single the rest of my life. I don't have any other options. But for whatever reason, he deliberately, and there's a great stress in the scripture that this transgression has profound implications. This verse shapes our entire worldview of life. He took from it and he ate. 
Two things happened at that moment. Adam inherited condemnation. At that moment, he deserved to die for eternity. He deserved to be separated from God in the lake of fire. That's the penalty of sin. It's not just, oh, you're going to, like a cowboy movie, go, hold me closer, Red. Right? No, no, no. The penalty of sin is far greater than that. The penalty for sin to, to autonomously rebel against your creator. God says that his holy law demands eternal separation in the lake of fire. So he inherited condemnation. And guess what? So did we. When I was a kid, do you ever remember? Some of you were in the principal's office a lot, right? Now, there's two kinds. My wife, she would have been there because she was teacher's pet. She would have been like running errands. And Mr. Smith would have been, oh, Tammy, you know, she's our model student of the month. You know, my, I was there too. It's different schools, but for different reasons. But one of the threats that they would say is this. Is that going to be on my record? You ever wonder that? Your record. That's right. It's going to be on your record. You know, we still have your records, right? And so you think to yourself, what do you mean my record, right? When it comes to law, you know, is this a felony? Is this on my record? But I want you to think at a greater spiritual realm, God's record book. By way of metaphor, I'm picturing a file. When God pulls out your file, from the moment of your conception, your file had a red circle with a line through it that said, condemned, deserving of hell. And you're like, that's not fair. Why? Why would God hold me responsible? I didn't do it. In fact, I was out there going, don't do it, Adam. You're a moron, right? So Romans 5.12 says this. Through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and death spread to all men. Now listen, it doesn't say death spread to all men because Adam sinned. It says death spread to all men because all sinned. And you're going, oh, yeah, I know. I lied a while back. No, no, no. All babies, unborn infants, all sin. How could God say in the Bible that all of humanity, and it's a verb here. He doesn't say they will sin. He says all sin. The reality is that somehow from God's perspective, when Adam ate that fruit. He doesn't just say, too bad, he's your representative, your dad messed up, you bear the fruit of it. He says, we sin. And so in some mystical way, God considers that we participated. Now, some of you are going, no, I remember. I was chromosome seven down in his toe going, don't do it. But somehow, he and his decision involved us. So we had heard two things, his condemnation. So frankly, you don't have to do anything to go to hell. You're conceived, condemned. But secondly, we're going to learn that we inherited this corruption. We, in, we inherited this disposition, this, this unwillingness to obey God anymore. In fact, Romans 8 describes it this way. It's the mindset on the flesh. It says it's hostile to God. It's unwilling to obey God. It's not even able to. Okay? It's far worse than just, oh, God gave you a little free will, and maybe you'll choose Jesus, maybe you won't. But that's for the future. So as we wind down, next week we're going to come to the consequences. Unless, I mean, I wanted to go a little farther. Where's our lead pastor? Is he still in the room here? Maybe he's not here. Hey, if the boss, is he still here? Oh, yeah. Hey, boss, what do you think? Five minutes? Clock on the wall. Okay, well, I'm going by the clock on the wall. 
I want to go just a little bit further here. You're like, I came out and I paid my money. I put my money in the plate and I don't want to go home until I get my money's worth. Now, one of my friends, I discipled this pastor, right? He's a young man out in Ohio. He says, the elders came to me and said, pastor, when you get go past 12 o'clock, now mind you, this is an elder. He goes, when you go past 12 o'clock, I feel like I'm having to stay after school. This is an elder, right? And then, then, you know, those of us who teach at Karen, we get this. Uh, Mr. Allen, I get out in May. I go, oh, you mean you're graduating? Yes. I get out in May. And I'm going, wait a minute, that sounds very prison-like. We are not holding you here against your will, right? I get out. I spring. I break free. So, so since there's really no place to go, let me just have a couple more moments. But actually... As I suggested, Satan is very clever. I'm just saying, he's very clever. However, the reason we're going to have five more minutes is planned. We just wasted five. It's planned because John and Tyler and I planned something that we want to do. We're not going to look at the consequences, but, but, but we go, wow, we just saw somebody violate God's word. And the reality is, lest we are tempted to throw stones down, we do the same thing all the time. So one of the marks of a maturing Christian is we need to constantly learn how to repent. And so John and I were talking. John's going to come, and he's going to share something about a prayer that, that will bless all of us. And then we're going to close with a repenting song. So I'll just say this. If you're not a sinner, you go ahead and go, okay? But those of you that need to repent, let John finish. Well, as we uh, consider Genesis 3, um, we're reminded, obviously, of our sinfulness and our need to confess our sins. And so we confess our sins to God. We don't have to go to anybody else to confess our sins. We have a great high priest in Jesus, and so we can confess our sins to Christ. Uh, We do that personally. We confess our sins to him specifically, but we can also confess corporately uh, as a body. And and, uh, certainly, as as we think about how all men have died and women have died in Adam, are spiritually dead in Adam, we can come and we can confess our corruption and our condemnation, but then also rely on Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. So uh, on the, here we go. Uh, This is a prayer that's taken from a book called Prone to Wander, which is a book of prayers, uh, and uh, it's a prayer of confession based on Genesis 3. So I'm going to take just a few minutes and Confess your sins to God, uh, and then we will together pray this prayer.